Hey, welcome back to BU. This is Jill Herman. If this is your first time with us, huge welcome to you. We are so happy you're here and you did not find this podcast by accident. So if you are new, you probably don't know that I don't do a lot of interviews. Most of our episodes are solo episodes, probably about 80%. And I'm really selective about who I have on the show. So this person did not ask me to be on the show. I approached him and not only did I approach him, He was the number one choice on my list from the day I launched BU. And why is that? The reason is because as a new podcast listener, I listened and sampled several different shows. And actually, when I heard Luke's story, who was our guest today, it wasn't first on his show, but he was being interviewed on another podcast. And I was just fascinated by his background. I thought it was so interesting, the background he came from and then where he is now, his journey, his wisdom, that he was so real and approachable and had led a life that might make someone think that he wouldn't be. So as I listened to that episode, I was just so intrigued. And then I found his podcast which is called The Lifestylist. So I started listening to The Lifestylist, I would say about a year ago. And I was just blown away by the information he was sharing, but also the way he shared it. I even loved the way his voice sounded. And Luke, you know, you feel like you're his friend when you're listening to his show. And he has a really, really, really loyal community because of how he shows up in the world. You can just feel it through his voice. And then he follows it up with his integrity. Well, I was speaking with my coach. You've heard me mention Steph Stefandos. He was the relationship coach that my husband and I hired a couple of years ago. And we were chatting about my life. And I told him I had just launched a podcast just a couple of months before I met him. And he said, tell me about it. And I said, you know, I usually just have solo episodes. I don't know that I feel ready to have interviews. I don't know that I'm excited to have interviews. It's not because I need to have the whole show with my voice, but I just, I'm not feeling called to that yet. But I will tell you, like a dream guest for me, if I could describe sort of like the energy of what I want to put out and how I want the podcast to land for people, there's someone called Luke Story. Have you ever heard of him? (laughs) And what's funny is, He's one of his really good friends. And I had no idea. Steph said, I may have heard of him. He's one of my very, very dear friends. And when he said that, I just didn't just think, oh, well, isn't that cool? I knew right there that was a sign. That was one of those God moments. That was one of those God winks. That was one of those nudges. That was confirmation, affirmation that I was on the right path. So here we are about a year and a half later. And I approached Luke to see if he would be a guest on our show. And he gets approached, I'm sure, all the time. And he said yes. And the exciting thing is that when I went to Austin for the podcast tour, he invited me to do it in person. We sat in his office. And I will tell you, I was really nervous, really nervous, because I I just, you know, had so much admiration for him. And he's an expert at this. He's been doing it for years. And he's so good at it. And, you know, I'd really built him up in my in my mind, right? And of course, he was so kind and just super, super cool and great to chat with and so real. Yet I was still nervous. I didn't want to disappoint him. I didn't want to get it wrong. And the icing on the cake is he said, hey, by the way, I didn't tell you, but I'm going to go ahead and go live on Instagram and on Facebook. So my whole community came watch and I'm like, oh, shit, you are not. Because I was used to doing all of my podcasts 
in my apartment by myself, you know, with no one looking. If I did an interview, it was always over Zoom. So I had just done a couple of in-person interviews in Austin before his, and sitting down with him was definitely, definitely me pushing past my edges. About halfway through the interview, I felt like I had talked to him my entire life, and, and it was great. So what you're going to hear, this is an hour and a half long. And so not just because of the length of the interview, but because of the content, this could easily be two solid individual, like really, really, really great episodes, and they would be two of our best. That's how good this is. I actually don't get to listen to the interviews before I put them on the air. And this one, I figured out a way to listen to his track. I was getting my hair done yesterday. And I was listening to this and my hairstyle said, okay, he's amazing. I said, I know, I forgot how good the interview was. I mean, you guys, when you're listening, if you're really coming to this because you know that he is such an expert in health and wellness and biohacking and you just want to hear that, okay, listen to the last like 30 minutes of the episode. But I encourage you to listen to the whole thing because we talk about things that he didn't expect to talk about. I didn't expect to talk about. We talked about wealth. We talked about greed money, mindset about money, how we feel about ourselves, and how that determines how much money we are willing to accept and willing to attract and able to. We talked about spirituality and what that really means. We talked about addiction. We talked about recovery. I mean, we hit it all. And then as, as I said, in the very end, we got to his real wheelhouse, which is biohacking and we went into EMF and he went into so much detail when truly you can get all of that on his website but he was willing to say it again for all of you so I am so excited to introduce you to Luke's story and I'm genuinely excited that Luke's story is now connected to all of you to be you so there are a lot of links in the show notes. Make sure you check out his website, Luke Story, and Story has an E in it, S-T-O-R-E-Y dot com. The reason I say that is because he has spent years, you'll hear in the interview, 15, 20 years doing research on hacking your, your health and wellness. And every product he endorses and uses and truly believes in is linked on the website. Anything from supplements to EMF protection, to red light therapy, to how to restructure your water. I mean, you name it, it's there. You can also obviously find him on Instagram, Luke Story, S-T-O-R-E-Y, on YouTube, on Twitter, and of course, his podcast, The Life Stylist Podcast. So I'm going to tell you some things about Luke that we didn't mention in the interview, and it's really impressive. If you listen to his background, it's just so interesting the things he's done and the life he has led. So Luke is a motivational speaker, a meditation and metaphysics teacher, and a lifestyle design expert who shares transformative principles of health and spirituality. He's the host of the top-rated The Lifestylist podcast and founder of School of Style, the world's premier online fashion school for stylists. Luke has spent the past two decades refining the ultimate wellness lifestyle. His teachings combine primal health and ancient spiritual practices with the most cutting-edge natural healing and consciousness-expanding technologies. Luke has been featured in The Hollywood Reporter, Los Angeles Magazine, Men's Fitness, and he's appeared on numerous TV networks, including Style Network, VH1, and MTV. Luke was once addicted to heroin 
and alcohol and crack at 26 years old. He not only became sober and has been sober for many, many years, but he went on to achieve the following. Are you ready for this? He became a celebrity stylist for 17 years. He used to style Aerosmith, Ozzy Osbourne, Kanye West, Kim Kardashian, Marilyn Manson, Foo Fighters, and so many more. He founded the first independent fashion school, as I mentioned, School of Style. And that school continues to be the world's leading school for stylists under his leadership as the founder. So he's had well over 7 million downloads of his podcast. He's had guests like Sharon Salzberg, Dave Osprey, Neil Strauss, Dr. Joe Dispenza, John Gray, Ben Greenfield, Bruce Lipton, Dr. Zach Bush, Byron Katie, and J.P. Sears. I mean, this guy knows about everything from infrared saunas to EMF, biofeedback, sun gazing, grounding, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, sleep optimization, nutrition, nootropics, Ayurvedic herbalism. I mean, he has such a wealth of knowledge. So dig in. As I said, it's about an hour and 35 minutes long. You're going to love every single minute of this. Please share it far and wide. Please go start following him and learning from him. And let us know what you think of the episode. Tag both of us and enjoy this beautiful conversation with Luke's story. There is nothing more inspiring than a woman being unapologetically herself. The answers are all in your heart. She's waiting, she's waiting, she's waiting for you to set her free. Welcome to BU Podcast. I'm Jill Herman and I am so glad you're here. I was broke, insecure, and craved approval. But with grit, hustle, and sacrifice, I still built a successful multi-million dollar business. 10 years in, burnout, I slowed down and looked inward. In that silence, I discovered that the same level of success could have come to me with much less effort and so much more joy. That's when I threw out the expectations of the world and chose to unbecome every single thing I thought I was supposed to be. And the real me was uncaged. It was far from easy. And in this podcast, I'll offer my entire journey as a roadmap so that if you're ready, you can finally be you. Huge honor for me. So I I waited to share this with you. I didn't tell you before we started recording, but if you're wondering why we're here, well, we're here because you said yes. So thank you. But something you don't know is that I started my podcast, I did tell you one year ago. And I knew nothing about podcasting. I'm a former, I'm a nurse who became a network marketer, direct sales, MLM, whatever term you want to use, built a huge business there, felt called to do something different, didn't know how to get out, wasn't sure, totally codependent, afraid to abandon everybody and ended up being forced out. And a month later, I decided to start a podcast. And once when I started the podcast, I think maybe 60 days later is when I found someone we both know. Steph Zafandos. And in a conversation about my career, he said, so like, what would you want to do with your podcast? And I said, I really don't know. It's just going to be like a healing journey. I'm just going to figure it out. I don't, I'm not trying to make money. I'm not trying to get a blue check mark one day. I just want to just help people and just experience my life through this and just see what happens. I don't care if anyone really listens. And he said, well, who would you want to have on your podcast? And I said, okay, so there's this guy. I don't know who he is. I don't know. I think... (laughs) Really, you're the one person 
I've had your name written on my whiteboard for a year. And I said to him, there's this guy. And I heard him on a podcast, but I don't remember what the podcast was because I don't listen to podcasts. I started listening to them so I could figure out what they are because it's an interesting story about why I started one. But he said, who is it? And I said, his name is Luke Story. He goes, get out of here. He's my friend. And I said, what? How do you, because I didn't know much about Steph. I'm like, you're from Australia. How are you friends? And then we just went on and talked about other things. And he said, wait, I have a question. Why? Like, why Luke? Considering you're going to be speaking mostly to women, you have this business background, like, why Luke? And I said, I could just sense listening to him that he is just real. And if my podcast is about being yourself and finding the real you and just being that person, that's how I see you. And I could feel it through the interview, whatever interview it was. And then I heard your interview with Christine. And I was like, yes, I love that. And I, I just could sense it in the conversation. And I could sense it meeting you here too. And, and every person I know now who knows you says the same thing. He's just such a solid guy. He's such a good person. And so it's, it's a real honor for me because the female name I had on my list is Lisa Bilyeu. So it was you and her are the two people who are like, you know, if I could have anyone on my podcast, it would be them. So the fact that one year later, I'm in Austin sitting in your office recording, it's just crazy to me. And then I learned, obviously, more about you. And what I admire about you is that what I see is your following. These are people who you truly connect with and they fully trust you and you truly care about them. You've never said that to me. I just can sense that, that it's not to you about that. It's not about the following and the having what a lot of people are seeking. They want to be an influencer and they, and you seem like the anti-influencer, which is what I love. Um, that that's not, you know, and you'll have to tell me if that's right, but that's how I see you, that, that you are influencing people, but that you're not doing it because that's what you're trying to do. And when it comes to the health hacking and the, you know, they call it biohacking. I had never heard that term before your interview. Um, I'm a former nurse. And what I've said to my friends is just go follow Luke because he does all the research. It's done all the work that you and I are never going to do. And you can trust the answer. It's not, I'm being endorsed. So I'm going to say this. It's, I'm affiliate for this because I believe in it. So I, I really love that about you. Wow. Well, those are all outstanding compliments. And I, I thank you for that. And I think that's all, that's all true, you know, really. And w one piece of feedback I get often is that people find me to be authentic. And I don't think there's a much higher compliment, right? Because one could be a smart person or a kind person. <laughs> you could have a lot of incredible attributes as a human being, but if you're not real and authentic, people aren't really getting a true sense of who and what you really are. And it's funny because, and I'm going to claim this because you you see it, and I'm sure there are areas in which I'm putting on some sort of airs sometimes because I'm a fallible, imperfect person, but Authenticity is not really something that one can conjure up and fabricate. Like, ooh, being real is the in thing. So, yeah, people try. <laughs> so, I'm going to learn how to be real, right? It's like, I think with self acceptance comes the ability to just be open and vulnerable. And what I've noticed that's interesting is that there's a self encouraging positive feedback loop with the more I can just truly express myself as I am, 
and and surrender any sense of shyness or insecurity or self-judgment. It's like the more vulnerable I can be to the point where my ego is going like, shut up. The thing you're about to say, don't say that publicly. People are listening, you know? But the more I lean into that, I find the more people respond. Mm -hmm. It also serves to give other people permission to be that way too. And, and I've observed this. When I see a public figure on any level demonstrating vulnerability, authenticity, and saying things that kind of make me cringe because I'm going like, I can't believe they just said that to a crowd or on a podcast, whatever it is. And I see the response of everyone just being showering them with more approval than they would have ever received putting on a show. Then it gives me sort of uh, more permission to be myself more fully. And it's, it's really is, it's like a, a social feedback loop. And, and perhaps someone might hear me delve into something that's rather personal or vulnerable. And I'm doing so shamelessly, hopefully on a good day that they might then um, find that liberation within themselves and say, you know what, all of this is okay to talk about. And it's been interesting to observe, not just because of you know any influence I've had in that capacity, but I think just socially with the proliferation of social media and everyone having the ability to be their own broadcaster, right? You have your Instagram Live, hey, Instagram Live guys, you have a podcast, YouTube channels. Um, we're not any longer dependent on huge corporate media conglomerates to verify us and validate us to have a voice and to have a platform. Yeah. We've been able to create our own platforms, right? So now we can create the content that we crave, which is really what I do. The content that I create is content that I would want to consume because I am actually consuming the content I create as I create it, right? It's created for me. And if other people benefit, then that's a bonus to it really. But it's becoming more prevalent all the time that people are talking about things publicly that used to be relegated to the therapist's office or confession, right? It's like we're talking about, you know, childhood physical trauma, sexual trauma. We're talking about dysfunctional relationships. We're talking about uh, addictions. We're, we're really, I mean, not everyone, but those of us that are engaging with and creating this type of media have the opportunity to really shed a lot of the shame and the stigma around these very real, very common, very natural human experiences. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's where the healing takes place is it's like unveiling the collective shadow through each individual, having the courage and being able to summon the bravery to explore some of these parts of our humanity in a more public way. And, there, and there's so much healing in that, right? I mean, even just to hear someone speak of something very personal and intimate that they've overcome some degree of suffering in their life, you hear that and there's healing within that. Just hearing someone else share, you go, oh my God, I'm not the only one. You know, yeah. and this is really the premise of the entire 12-step movement um, is based on that. It used to be, you know, back in the day in the 30s, there was an AA meeting in the basement of a church and a bunch of old drunks would go down there and kind of confess their sins and ad admit their innermost struggles and concerns and acknowledge their uh, harmful behavior and character defects and their inadequacies. And it would be done within the confines of that group and the safety of that group. And there's so much healing in that type of private yet 
public to some degree shadow work, for lack of a better term, right? Mm-hmm. You're kind of just airing your stuff in an environment that is uh, supportive and receptive to the challenges that one is seeking to overcome. And so that, I mean, that's not all that that model entails, but that's a big part of it, right? It's just, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of the lost art of the human experience. We used to talk to the village elder or sit around the fire and there was context in which humans could relate to one another intimately and help people overcome the difficulties of day-to-day life. And then that was sort of lost somehow, maybe because of the shame that was sort of superimposed on some of these topics and, and very human experiences through religion or just social norms. And you just, you don't talk about that. You have manners. But now we're in this era where increasingly people are able to really share parts of themselves which would have been held uh, private and in some cases largely unhealed because of the lack of a safe platform in which to do so. So to me, as someone who's kind of cut my teeth in addiction recovery, self-examination and doing so in the presence of other people is just part of my natural modus operandi. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so when I started my podcast... I mean, I've warmed up to it more and more and become much more vulnerable. But in the beginning, I think because I was just used to interacting that way in my social circles, especially within the confines of recovery, that I didn't know that everyone doesn't do that. Yeah, right, right. right yeah. And then you sit down with someone and they say, you know, one thing I love about you is you're so real and so authentic and people know you as such. And I never tried to be that way. It's just it's part of how I've learned to grow and and evolve and accept myself. And then in observing and participating in that feedback loop, then after the fact, I started to realize, wow, there's real power in this. Mm -hmm. You know, there's real power in giving people permission to just be themselves. And then it's a matter of growing into one's boundaries in terms of your ethics and how comfortable other people are with you talking about things that are relatively private. Mm -hmm. So kids like me that um, had their boundaries invaded constantly by a number of different people in a number of different ways didn't really have a social filter, right? And so you might be at Thanksgiving dinner and start talking about being molested and everyone's turning red going, oh my God, this is uncomfortable because it's not the right context, right? Mm -hmm. So my I guess, personal journey with it has been learning how to have some temperance around that and knowing when it's the proper venue when you're not going to be causing any sort of harm, right? Yeah. But if you do as you've done and as I've done and you create your own channel of media where you forewarn people, hey, these are the things we're going to be talking about and this is the depth at which we're going to be exploring them, come in at your own peril, then I think you have a lot more freedom. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have a podcast about being your authentic self and being real. You want to talk about some real stuff before we started. You're like, is there we can't go? And I go, I don't think so. You know, I'll know, I'll know when I hit up against it, but generally not because there's been an invitation, right? It's, it's the difference between sort of emotionally vomiting on, on a group of people or someone that haven't invited your personal experience into their awareness, right? But when you're invited, man, to me, all bets are off. Like, let's get real. Let's get down and dirty. Let's have um, a meaningful interaction that's transformative. Mm-hmm. You're only here for so long, right? It's Yeah, like, I totally agree. What benefit is there in talking about the weather other than as an initial 
hey, nice to meet you. Let's talk about the weather a little bit. Where are you from? Where are you born? Oh, really? I know that, you know, the, the social niceties that we just experienced when you walked in, right? I mean, that's, that's a reason why people have a little small talk. You kind of judge the level of comfortability and the level of uh, intimacy that you're going to be met with. And, and once you've established that and that's kind of clear and understood, then God, what else is there to talk about but your heart and your faith and um, the challenges that you've overcome and the sort I mean, of- we feel that way, yeah, right? Yeah. But a lot of people don't. Well, they- Right? We just don't hang out with them. Not, every, <laughs> not everyone is in a place in their life where they're really seeking to look inside and they right. don't want to be exposed because either they haven't been motivated to do so by- pain or they haven't experienced the pleasure that comes with healing open communication and and i'm a firm believer in not forcing people to grow faster than nature is inclined you know it's uh, akin to seeing the bud that will be a rose and tearing the green leaves off it because you want to see that rose so bad you know everyone is coming to the table um at their own pace and with their own level of intensity and willingness. And there are those who are never going to become a rose and they're going to stay a bud and that's none of my business. Yeah, yeah. I have found for me that, so people are more transparent about like trauma, things that are like really uncomfortable to talk about. And what I have found through my podcast, the episodes that are really resonating with people shocked me. Like talking about women being jealous of other women. being That secret- doesn't happen, does being- it? <laughs> Not me. (laughs) Secretly competitive, you know, like things that I did not think would be a big deal. And women saying, oh my God, me too, me too. So I don't know what your thought is on this and anyone watching, but for me, I feel like it's become more popular and more sort of normal in a good way for people to talk about the deep, dark, dirty, you know, stuff that they were afraid to talk about, right? You know, I'm a recovering this or I was molested and I love that. But I'm finding that it's still not super common, at least with women, to talk about the secret fears we have, the fears about ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves. I'm still dealing with this one thing that always comes up for me. Do you find that? Well, I think that there's never going to be things that we're not trying to overcome. You know, each of us has our own blind spots and our own patterns subconscious patterns based on our past experiences that are playing out and sometimes with negative results. And I think it's just whether or not someone has the propensity to really grow, you know, and if someone has that underlying desire to know themselves and to evolve, they're going to find a way to push through that discomfort. And to your point, some of the things that we wrestle with inside are somewhat superficial, right? So say someone's finding within themselves like, wow, I'm really competitive and jealous and I'm envious. And I see this other woman who's younger mm-hmm. and prettier. And I just think that bitch, how dare she be more successful than, than I? Or, or, you know, I'm trying to get pregnant and it's not working and, and she did it. You know, I mean, these are very normal, natural human experiences, thoughts and feelings and ways of behaving. So it's not even that kind of getting into shadow work has to be so deep and dark and addiction and trauma. To me, shadow is just, it's those hidden parts of ourselves that perhaps we're unaware of. And if we are, God forbid we let anyone else know that. You know, if I see myself as being someone who's egalitarian and fair and, and kind, well, then I don't want anyone to know that I secretly hate this person for being more successful than I, or that I perceive them to be so. So I, I think the, 
healthy path forward is for all of us to learn how to conduct a moral inventory of ourselves and continue to do so. You know, going back to the 12 steps, which has by far been the most influential spiritual teaching in my life. There's there's so much within that. It's often missed because people think that, well, the 12 steps as a spiritual framework are for people that are addicted to this or that or the other, but those principles are universal and and not born even out of the 12 steps, but just spiritual principles, laws that are timeless and universal. And one timeless and universal law before the advent of Alcoholics Anonymous and long after it's gone away, God forbid it ever does because we need it, but is that human beings have a desire to be truthful about themselves and to and to look inside. You know, we have the gift of self-reflection and self-awareness. Many of us don't use it because it's often uncomfortable or it's not a skill that we've acquired. But when we look at Cookie over there, you know, she's she's not aware of her own addiction to treats, right? And her neediness for affection and, you know, her codependent relationship with her dad being <laughs> me, you know, she's just like, where's the next treat? But we have a prefrontal cortex and um, we're able to observe our instinctive drives if we're driven to do so, if we learn how to do so. So I might see a beautiful woman in the hall and I go, ooh, I find myself wanting to stare or something, which incidentally doesn't really happen for me anymore. But let's say it did. There was a time when there was no way I wouldn't, I would have been so compelled to do so and probably talk to her and try to get her number in the whole routine. But if that were to happen now, it's like there's an, an aware part of me that says, oh, that's nice and just keeps walking. But I'm also not trying to stuff and deny that part of yes, myself. Yes, I was going to say that. And you probably have learned not to judge that part of yourself because I'm yeah. still learning that. Or the part of me that is driving home at 9 p.m. and I'm like, I really want a pint of ice cream. And then a voice says, Luke, don't do it. What about that gut you've got? And I go... I'm going to take the hit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Whole Foods is still open and, and I do it, right? But there's a self-awareness. It's like, ooh, I'm having a compulsion right now. It's compelling me to do something that my conscious mind doesn't really want me to do. Maybe even my higher self is like, do you really need ice cream? But I want that dopamine. I want that fat and that sugar and it feels good. And and I'm going to do it with self-awareness and and try and relinquish any judgment or guilt or shame that comes up around it. You know, I started using nicotine again like a year ago and I've had an ongoing relationship and battle with this molecule since I was 16 years old in 1986. And um, it's come and gone in various forms. And I'm not smoking cigarettes, thank God, but I love this Lucy nicotine gum. It's a great nootropic. So I started using it for that. And next thing you know, I'm on them all day long. I've got one in my mouth right now, you know? So I'll look at something like that and say, okay, this is something I'd like to have awareness around. I'm not going to fool myself into thinking that I'm not having these cravings for this and feel like I need it all the time, but I'm also not going to beat myself up. It's going to relinquish itself and I'm going to let it go when I'm well and ready for it. So Mm -hmm. I think the spectrum of things we find within ourselves that we'd like to change goes from the very insignificant to the pathologically dangerous. And so it doesn't really matter where your particular drives are landing on that scale, self-awareness and the ability to acknowledge them, accept them in a non-judgmental way is what leads you to the next phase of moving through it, which is surrendering the fact that you don't have control over it. So if, you know, one of your listeners is jealous of the girl at work that got a promotion and thinks she's hot shit and she's prettier and has a nicer car and whatever, it's like, you don't even have to stop doing that. 
one is invited to build awareness around, oh, wow, that's interesting. I'm observing this within myself. And in that observation, oftentimes is enough power to just relinquish and totally surrender that behavior because you start to observe the drive and the initial sort of hit Mm -hmm. to think about that or to feel a certain way. Yeah. And what I've learned is actually very recently, um, also then looking underneath it to find what is the feeling I'm feeling when I see that person? It's not really about her. It's a feeling that I'm feeling that has nothing to do with her. That's from my childhood. And if I go back to that feeling and I say, okay, hold on, that's familiar. That feels really familiar. When did I feel that before? Oh, when I was a child, I felt panicked or I felt this or that because I was afraid I was going to X, Y, or Z. And then I can love that part of myself. Then it's going to be less often that I get the trigger, that I see the female and I have the feeling. And when you said the self-acceptance, I've all been all about self-awareness. You know, I'm so self-aware and I'm always looking at myself and I'm digging into myself and I've made myself a project for about six or seven years, you know, like turning myself inside out and discovering this and that. And what I didn't do, Luke, I did not learn until, I mean, really recently. I almost just said, I'm embarrassed to say, see, it's the same thing. I almost said, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I didn't learn until recently that the thing to do is to love that part of myself which I know it, it sounds the way it rolled off your tongue that that's, you've had that for a while, but you know, we're about the same age and I just figured that out. Like I thought being aware of it and fixing it was what you do, right? I had this very masculine approach to it. And recently the work I've been doing just showed me something that is so obvious to some people, but it wasn't to me. And that was, what about just loving that part of yourself? The part of you that does get jealous, the part of you that does feel insecure, the part of you that, because I even have used words like, I hate that part of myself. I hate that I'm like that. I hate that I get jealous. It's so superficial. It's so just gross. Like what nice person would be jealous that another woman's prettier than her when there are a million women prettier? Like what? And I, and I realized, oh my gosh, I can't let it go because I haven't figured out what that feeling is connected to. And I haven't loved that part of myself. All I've done is judge that person. And just very, very recently, I realized it's okay that that happens. It doesn't make me a bad person. Yeah. Well, that's the difference between power and force, right? Mm -hmm. There's a power in love that's transformative versus the force of judging oneself and gritting one's teeth. And I'm going to change. I'm not going to be like that anymore. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is the... Or this, I'm going to hide it. The, yeah, this is the vicious cycle of addiction, right? It's like you, you're butting up against something that is causing you pain uh, on some level or interrupting the flow of your life and relationships. And you think, oh, God, I just got to try harder to not be this way, right? But there's there's such a limitation in force. You know, there's resistance in force, whereas power is just something that emanates from underneath you and who you are and all of your problems. And there's immense power in surrender and in that love. And oftentimes I find that these things sort of just solve themselves if I'm willing to be courageous enough to not suppress them and repress them, you know, whether I'm aware that I'm doing that or not, but just to keep that observing awareness of all the little, you know, triggers and inclinations and things that come up throughout my day. And I find when I can take myself a little less seriously and not be such a perfectionist, then 
I'm not trying to like wrestle and force myself to change or be different. I find that I'm actually able to just have more discipline and let things go the more I just surrender into them. It's like having acceptance that there's nothing wrong with being the way I am, but there's also no limit to how much better I can become. You know, I think a lot of that has to do with a reinterpretation of the principle of humility, where you're able to just acknowledge who, what, and where you are, good, bad, ugly, and know that there's a part of you that wants to steadily improve. It's in our nature to improve, you know, to to be more fit, to be more kind, to be a bit sharper, to be more productive, to be more loving, all of those positive attributes that we have as humans. There's a part of every one of us, even the most depraved person who is seeking on some level to improve. And how that plays out is through our acceptance of everything that we are, right? So in in humility, one isn't critical of those things uh, within them that they seek to change or that they deem to be wrong or um, insufficient or whatever. It's going like, okay, cool. So I've come a long way. I've overcome a lot of difficulties, challenges, negative habits, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, etc. That's great. Let's celebrate that. But there's also more to go for. I can go further. It's like, I think we we think of the, and it's such a powerful principle, that's why I like to talk about it. We think of the the quality of humbleness as someone who won't take a compliment, who doesn't think too highly of themselves, someone who lacks conceit or pretense. But the other side of humility is also someone who doesn't hate themselves in self-obsessed narcissism for not being perfect, right? Humility means that to me at least, and I'm and I'm humble enough to say I don't have it down, you know, I'm learning, is seeing yourself for who and what you really are. So it's it's not getting too big, but it's not playing too small. It's just finding the equilibrium to just present yourself in your day-to-day life as you are in that moment. It's so for hard. For better or for worse. And that that's the foundational principle of acceptance, you know, I'm just saying like, cool, this is who I am. Uh, these are the things I'm working on and and also taking time to go, wow, these are the things that I've worked on and I've been successful in so doing. I mean, I don't do this as much as I would like to, but man, I mean, if I even take the me from five years ago, oh my God. I mean, it's like, if I was being judgmental, I would go, oh my God, I was such a horrible person. I was so unconscious and I was so lame, <laughs> you know? But I can look back and go, holy shit, I've grown so much. But then the temptation is to be like, oh, I'm done. I've got it all figured out. So no, it's like, well, what else is there that I could expand into? You know, how much further could I be loving and authentic and honest and all of the the things that I wish to celebrate and um, cultivate more within myself? Mm -hmm. But it's important to look back and, and track our progress, you know, especially when you're on the spiritual path. And um, even more so, I think, people that are in recovery from addictions, it's like you're sort of trained into working on yourself and working on yourself and looking for what's wrong with you and your personality and all the areas in which you're falling short. And you're looking at this insurmountable mountain of clay in front of you and you keep shoveling away, you know, I got to get rid of everything that's not truth and get to God or whatever your tendency or framework is. 
But often we forget to look back and go, oh my God, there's a massive totally mountain agree. of coal behind me that's already been shoveled. It's, I mean, especially for perfectionists. Yeah. Like us. Yeah. But that, <laughs> I mean, that's, I, I get reminded regularly by the coaches I have, you know, that's that say, the look antidote. What you've done. Yeah. That's the antidote uh-huh. to, I think, egotism and perfectionism, which are all just kind of different elements of the yeah. same mm-hmm. mental pathology. But, observing and acknowledging the progress we've made, giving ourselves a healthy, you know, humble pat on the back and saying, okay, cool. We've made a lot of progress and, and what's next. And that also keeps things interesting. You know, it's like, I think if you arrive at a place at which you're done, then why are we still here? What else is there to do with one's life? For me, it's like, there's different areas of my life I want to expand in uh, this year, I think, because we bought this house and it's, I mean, talk about a money pit. Oh my God. I had no idea one could spend this much money in a 10 month period. I mean, it's astonishing. So right now I'm really focusing on my sense of self-worth and my capacity to allow abundance into my life. I mean, specifically monetary abundance. Like now is the time Luke needs money. I'm doing a lot of things right now that need money. I've never been very motivated by money. It's more about the freedom and the opportunities and the things that money allow you and your comrades to do together. You know, like I always imagine if yeah. if I get to the point where I'm just bloody rich, you know, what would I do? Would I go buy five houses? No, I would take all my broke ass friends on trips. You know, and it's like, what are you going to do? You want to have experiences, you Mm -hmm. know, but now at this point in my life, I mean, there'll be experiences later on, but now I have a very concrete and really quite materialistic goal, which is to like, I want to build a home for my family, get it all set, taken care of, move in, do my thing, you know? So what I'm working on now is not so much, you know, like, my connection with God or different, more etheric or even more broadly relevant or important aspects of myself ultimately, but it's kind of more like on the earth plane and the 3D, like I got to get some shit done right now. So I'm, you know, diversifying and business ideas and partnerships and investing and doing all these things that I didn't really care about before because I just want to live my life and enjoy my time with my friends and family. And I don't really need a lot, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so. Now I'm working on that and I'll put a lot of energy into that. And I'm sure a time will come in the near future when I'm in said house that I work so hard to manifest for and, and elevating my self-worth and my sense of deservingness of, of that level of success. And then... Which is spirituality. Yeah. And I'll probably get in the house and then just, you know, want to be a dad and a better husband and my energies will will be on that. But it's not like one path intrinsically has more value or relevance or validity than the other. It's all part of propelling oneself forward into expansion, into more of what you are and and developing uh, sometimes dormant or inert aspects of oneself because you've never been motivated in this particular way. Say like you never really cared about being physically fit and then you get the idea one day, huh, I've not really paid much attention to my body. I've been off making money or being spiritual or doing relationships or having kids or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And you know what? I think now it's time to test my capacity for fitness and becoming passionate and interested in that. And then you go with that for a while and you make a little progress. But at the end of the story of your life, one could hope, you know, in your final hours and, and uh, minutes that you're going, man, I gave it all I had. 
anything that was in front of me that I felt like I could improve, I did. And I also accepted the things on which I was stuck. You know, I went as far as I could because no one's ever going to achieve mastery in every area of their life. It's kind of like your curiosity and interest gets peaked in different directions at different points. And I just follow the passion, right? If I'm feeling like a healthy pull towards developing in a certain area, then I go, all right, I didn't think I was going to be into this, but here we go, you know? So is this the first time in your life where you've like really focused on jacking up the bank account? I know you make great money, but I mean, is this the first time where you really have thought this way? You're like, I'm not motivated by money, but I'm growing my income. I'm focusing on abundance. Have uh, you done that before? Yeah, I would I would say so. I mean, I'm sure earlier in life, I, yeah, I mean, there were times when I felt like the way I wanted to feel inside was dependent on a certain degree of material success. So I worked really hard toward that end. But now I would say it's not about making money or getting things. It's being very clear on the target being the feeling of having a secure, safe, healthy, high vibe home Mm -hmm. because I want to share that with my wife and I want to have some kids and I want to have people over and build community. And it's like the financial part of it is more of a means to an end. I have no delusions that if I had more money, I would be any happier because I've been hundred grand in debt and been had no assets whatsoever and been ecstatically happy and fulfilled. You know, I've also, I remember what, one of my great lessons was many years ago in LA, you know, I mean, I just was grinding. I worked in the fashion industry for a long time and I, and I made good money, but I always spent way more than I made. And uh, I just did not respect the principle of currency. You know, I didn't understand how it all worked and maybe I still don't, but I'm learning more. But I always lived in apartments, was always struggling with money. I was always kind of broke. And um, I was a musician for a long time before that. And I was really broke when I was a musician. But anyway, at one point, I was doing pretty well. I'd started a business out there, a fashion school. And my business partner was also my girlfriend. And we got together and we each lived in apartments right next to each other. And we're like, man, we want to move in together. We want to get a house. So we went and rented this house in the Hollywood Hills that at that time was like way out of our budget, just logically speaking. And we leased this house and it was this beautiful mid-century modern house built in the 50s up in the Hollywood Hills. It had a 360 view of like downtown LA to the ocean. You know, I mean, it was just epic. I mean, I used to sit there and go, oh my God, I like we live here or we I felt like I broke into someone else's house because I hadn't yet cultivated, you know, that I that I deserve to have that kind of opulence. Now, to me, that house would be a little rundown. It's a cool house, but I would remodel it, you know? But then it was like by far the biggest, nicest house I'd ever lived in. And and over some time of living there, that woman and I broke up and she left me because I was very immature and so unavailable in many ways. And, and I really loved her. And so she left. And of course, I was devastated, but understood. And I remember sitting in the living room of that house with this expansive view and just sitting there bawling my eyes out. I remember I would try to meditate in the morning and I just, I couldn't meditate because I would just cry and cry and cry. I just missed her so much. And it was just so sad, the demise of it. And I knew kind of the part that I played in the demise of it and that I even couldn't even change how I was. You know, it's like I knew, I understood there was no blame or anything, but I'm like, wow, I'm really, I'm really alone now. And I remember sitting there and crying, looking at that view going, 
even if I wasn't renting this house, even if I owned it, it would have zero impact on the feeling I have inside right now. You know, that broken heart. A house doesn't heal a broken heart and neither does career accolades or fame or any of that shit. I've known so many successful people, materially successful, that have that either are miserable or have been miserable, you know? So I don't hold any illusion that anything outside of myself is going to give me the feeling that I yearn for, which is that feeling of um, purpose and a feeling of belonging and a feeling of love and connection and all of those things which are in a different dimension than anything in the material plane. So yes, it's the first time in my life I'm really like focusing on that, but it's more about what's on the other side of that. But even beyond that perhaps is actually expanding my sense of what I think I'm capable of and 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 ultimately what I deserve. That like a kid that was a drug addict and that felt stupid and grew up with so much shame and anxiety and depression and no, I had no education. I dropped out of high school. I mean, I don't have anything on paper that says I know how to do anything <laughs> worthwhile. Can that kid who still lives within me grow into a man who's very intelligent and capable and productive and creative and entrepreneurial in spirit. Like it's more about how much of that can I embody and how many of those glass ceilings can I break to where I am able to feel deserving of and worthy of actual wealth. So it's not the wealth, it's it's the worthiness. It's, it's the worthiness mm -hmm. of achieving that, mm -hmm. which I would argue, based on my own experience, is the block most people have to yes, becoming wealthy. I totally agree. Is that no matter what you do and how hard you work, now with the preface that wealth doesn't make you happy, let's just make that clear. <laughs> I think anyone who's been wealthy would agree. It can make life easier, right? I was just going to say, it does, it does yeah. like make life yeah. easier. Hey, listen, it does man, give you options I've that been, you don't have. I've been, I've been broke. broke as anything. Me too. <laughs> I would not recommend it. But I've also been broke and extremely free and happy yes, um, yeah. and, and less responsibility, less toys, less paperwork, less CPAs, less all that. But I think that most people that are broke and really struggling with abundance doesn't have much to do with their intelligence, talent, creativity, maybe work ethic, laziness could be a huge hindrance Which to that. Which is still connected to that. Yeah, right, right, yeah. right. The apathy of mm -hmm. like, oh, might as well just, you know, yeah. stay on Facebook today or eat pie or whatever you're doing, smoke weed, play video games, you know. <laughs> but it really is the feeling that's like, I deserve this. I deserve. And, and I think we're disconnected from that because of domestication, right? If you look at indigenous peoples, you you look at ancient peoples, hunter-gatherers, their perspective, and I'm no expert on this, but from what I observe, is that their perspective is that they are not separate from the abundance of nature, but they are interwoven in a part of nature. There's one life the that we're talking about power animals and Allison's work, right? So you know, they take cues from the eagle flew by, it means that, and they know that this plant goes in this season and that they can kill a deer over here and that the planet itself is this synergistic, this boundless uh, creator of sustenance and abundance, right? So it's like, you don't even need to feel like you deserve it if you're living within that. But then we built industry and education and business and finance and the monetary system and all of these systems that are put into place, which are really quite artificial. And within that, 
is where we find that we don't deserve to have that out there because we've lost connection with the fact that the earth just gives everything to you more than mm. you could ever need. Mm-hmm. You know, when we um, started using agriculture and then building townships and cities and countries and all this infrastructure, well, then now you need to participate in that infrastructure in order to have your abundance because that abundance has been consolidated into the hands of very few that are in power and that are controlling that infrastructure, right? What we call society, modern society. But if you were just a natural human 15,000 years ago, living with your little tribe, maybe there'd be a hierarchical structure of your tribe and there'd you know, be a chief and a medicine person and a the best hunter or the best arrow maker or whatever, right? I mean, everyone would have their place, but you wouldn't be like finding that you lack the skills within yourselves to get everything that you need to sustain your life. You would just know, I think, I'm hypothesizing, that you would just know that the earth is inherently abundant and it has everything you need all around you all the time. Yeah. More food, more water, more sunshine, more shelter, more animals. Everything's just constantly being procreated by nature because we saw ourselves, I think, as part of nature rather than being extracted and apart from it. Mm -hmm. Whereas now it's like, we're fighting nature and we're fighting to find our way and to get ours and to get that security, not because it's not there, but because the system has been put in place that causes us to jump through all these hoops and it's our low self-worth and our lack of faith in God and in nature and in the abundant nature of our universe that leads some of us to believe that we are forever going to be without and small and lacking and that we see the people that are achieving success and we're maybe envious of them, jealous of them, or we just think like, God, they have something in their DNA that I don't have, but we all have it. Yeah. What do you think about this? I was just thinking about this when you were speaking, I thought to myself, it's interesting because in my experience, so I was a nurse, I told you who got into MLM, direct sales, network marketing. It's all basically the same thing. And, you know, started with no customers, nothing. I was working three jobs. My spouse at the time was struggling with addiction, had three kids under the age of nine. So I hustled and just hustled like crazy and built this huge business, right? However, I kept bumping up against a certain number. And I feel like most people have a number. Most people have a number, whether they're willing to admit it or not, or maybe they've never thought about it, that in their mind, if they're really honest with themselves and they peel the layers back, yes, money doesn't make you happy, but can you imagine yourself earning more or having more than what number? And I, I think most people have a number and that's their threshold. And, and I don't know why it's that number. For some people, it's 50,000 a year. For some people, it's 50,000 a month. For some people, it's a million dollars a year for other people. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I know that I always had a number. And my number was I couldn't, even in an exercise, I couldn't imagine, even if I tried, I couldn't imagine ever making more. The number for me, the threshold was $25,000 in a month, which is a shit ton of money, right? It's a lot of money, but I couldn't imagine it. Then I had to ask myself, why? Like, it's okay if you never do it, but why can't you even imagine? And where did the number 25,000 come from? There's that. But the other thing I thought about when you were speaking just now, when we talked about spirituality, is that I feel like I used to think it was just religion, the institution of religion that causes people to feel that having a lot of money is bad. But I'm finding on my spiritual journey that spiritual people who are not about religion at all, many of them have the exact same block. 
that many of them are struggling financially. And there's either this false narrative of, I don't really need money. I don't really care. But truly, they're like, I can't even pay my bills. Or they have sort of this money's bad mindset. So I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I just was thinking to myself, I used to think it was only religion that did it. But now I'm finding it. It's, there's a connection with all spirituality that's like, and and what my belief now, I don't know how you feel, is that whatever God you believe in wants you to have abundance in every area of your life in an abundant, an abundant level, like is as much as, you know, so it's not bad to have a lot of money or want a lot of money as long as it's coming from a place of love. You know, it doesn't mean what I used to think, which was, I just want to give it all away. I want to make a bunch of money to give it all away, you know, so... Going back to spirituality, do you find that people outside of, of religion have that same mindset that it's kind of like bad or uncool to be rich or want to be rich? Yeah, absolutely. I've had to work through a lot of that myself because my internal navigation system for a long time has been set due north to self-realization and enlightenment. I mean, that's the only thing worth doing here. So Anything I perceive to be outside of that goal, which would be making a bunch of money, for example, would not be categorized within that spiritual framework. It's like, why do you want to go? What good is it to go make a bunch of money? Like, God is what we're going for here, you know? And also in the intersection of doing something related to spirituality for your livelihood and wanting to be wealthy doing that. That's a tough one, right? Because probably because of a number of reasons. One being, if you look at, you know, someone like Osho, a famous Indian mystic, and he was famous for having this huge fleet of Rolls Royces and wearing all this gold jewelry and fancy clothing. And, you know, from the outside, you would think, oh, he's just a charlatan who's just extracting money from his naive followers. And he just wants to amass all this wealth. From the outside, it looks like that. And I don't know if that was the case or not, but I suspect it was more about maybe not even him, but some like that, that it's not even about the acquisition of wealth. It's them playing within the material world and just really actually playing with reality and just manifesting that just because, mm -hmm. right? Just to play with it, right? Not, not even because it has any meaning to them or that they really hold it so dearly. But when we see gurus, you know, in any kind of sector, if they're related to teaching about spirituality and they have uh, immense wealth and opulence, then I think there's a suspicion that they're being motivated by something other than the wholesome desire to help people evolve and awaken. So we have models of that kind of throughout history where you have a fallen guru kind of syndrome where they were perpetuating misconduct on their followers or extracting resources from their followers and things like that, uh, kind of cult-like dynamics. Mm -hmm. So we have to work our way through that, which can be a block. And then you also have the very well-worn and highly documented path of the renunciate, right? Someone who was a part of society and was kind of working their way up the corporate ladder in the world of business in some capacity, and they developed within them a yearning for God. And so they've renounced all, right. all earthly possessions and hiked up to a cave in the Himalayas and now are really doing the real work, quote, end quotes, right? They're meditating all day and they've given up their family and their car and their job and they're becoming more air quotes, 
spiritual or devoting their life to God. And so we have this kind of prevalent black and white uh, perspective that one can't in earnest seek God and also play with the realm of um, financial success and abundance. And it's a block. I mean, when I started doing my podcast, it was, I mean, I don't kind of market myself as a spiritual teacher per se, but in my heart, that's all I'm ever doing. Even if I'm talking about like spring water and EMFs and blue light and whatever, the whole purpose of all the physical stuff is just to make sure your body is vital enough for you to do your spiritual work. Kind of like the yogic perspective. It's not about the asanas and the stretches and positions. It's about having a body that can handle the immense energy downloaded in your meditations. You know, that's kind of how I view all that. But I started talking about psychology and addiction and meditation and spirituality and mindfulness and however you want to label all of that. And yet I'm building a brand around that. And it was like, oh, I need mm-hmm. to be doing this for free. There was kind of this sense of guilt. I can't be making money off people and yeah. teaching them how to pursue spirituality. And because of all the reasons and probably more that I haven't even uncovered that I just described, but I had to um, recontextualize that for myself because those are all limiting thoughts and beliefs, yes. right? And if if I'm seeking to live a spiritual life, what is a spiritual life if it's not a life without limitations? Thank you. I'm self, so glad you said that. Yes. Self, self-imposed or otherwise, right? So if I'm like, oh, I have to put myself in this box because I'm a meditator and I'm walking around in mala beads and giving everyone the namaste yes. hands, well then surely I can't have any money in the bank. Yes. That's It's an archetype of like the broke yogi and... Um, I think many people fall victim to that because of the reasons I just described. And with some self-awareness, I think that we could explore a perspective that is inclusive of financial success and security, but also altruism and being mindful of greed and being mindful of vapid materialism. And mindful of uh, a belief system in which we perceive that we're going to feel safe, secure, happy, worthy of value when we get it, that amount, that amount per month or per Mm -hmm. year or whatever, right? So Mm -hmm. there's a complex issue, you know, and one, the polarizing ends of that is like the renunciate who's just spiritual and is never going to have any more than $5 in their pocket and their little yoga. Yeah. Outfit, And then you have the corporate, greedy, cutthroat, unintegrous executive that's just taking advantage of everyone and lying and cheating and stealing to climb their way to the top of of the corporate ladder, right? But it doesn't have to be either or. I believe that there's a way, and this is the path I'm beginning to forge now, is what if I was successful in both paths, right? And finding my way back to God and also in finding my way of material abundance and celebrating that, what if I could do both and what would that look like and how would that not only benefit myself from a self-serving point of view, but how could my success actually benefit other people? And that's what I was you know, talking about before when I envision, man, if it was just limitless, I think like monetarily speaking, the one thing that really requires a lot of money that I would enjoy is private air travel. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't use the word hate often. I really reserve it but I hate flying, especially yeah. today. I mean, yeah, in today's I world, it's just like, oh my God. I saw God. all the steps you go through when you fly. It's <laughs> like, ridiculous. Oh 
It's ridiculous. But when I envision that, it's not like, ooh, I want to put myself standing next to a private jet on Instagram. It's like, I want to tell my friends, hey, you guys want to go to Costa Rica next month? Yes. Oh, I don't have the money, blah, blah. blah. I just got divorced. I quit my job. You know, it's like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Let's go. I got a villa. Let's do it. You know, it's more about it's sharing. And, And not only that, but, you know, also finding equitable ways to conduct in commerce and different sort of business verticals that are new and innovative and are more collaborative and cooperative in which many people benefit and you bring people into their own success. I mean, there's kind of, and I'm not even a big, you know, business, business guy in that way, but I, I see a sort of somewhat opaque vision of a different kind of personal relationship to the monetary system and even more beyond that, wherein people can use their resources in a way that is not selfish. Oh, yeah. Right. And within that, it's one of the most spiritual things you can do. Within that, yeah. I mean, there's no fault in seeking God and also seeking to have abundance as well. I think that they're they're not mutually exclusive, but without the awareness of kind of those archetypes and, and also the awareness of, you know, that part of ourselves that we all have of like greediness and insecurity and fear and wanting more than I really need. It's yes. like when, and what will people think? Even when you look at some animals in nature, like I always think about squirrels, right? And it's like, you know, you could throw a bag of peanuts out in your yard and that goddamn squirrel will take every single one. They don't <laughs> need that many peanuts. You know what I mean? I mean, maybe winter's coming. There's some sort of biological programming that inspires them to do so but it's like my dog i mean you could feed her a whole handful of treats and then put a steak on the ground she'll probably eat until she blows up you know there's there's something that we have as human animals it's just like more 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 but we can also supersede and elevate beyond that base nature through elevating our consciousness where yeah we can have more but there's plenty left over to share we don't actually have to to contract with wealth and abundance, we can expand and share and also help other people to become successful and help them overcome their limitations. I completely agree. And I find that there are a lot of people, I encountered a lot of people in my former business who had careers. They were servant-hearted, like social workers, nurses, teachers, coaches, whatever. And they just wanted a little extra cash. Like if I just have like a thousand bucks a month, but I'm telling you, Luke, 13 years of this, thousands and thousands of conversations, the same thing came up and it was all women. Same thing that came up. One was what you already hit on, worthiness. They didn't know that until we talked a little while. They didn't feel worthy, deserving of it. Two is, does it make me a bad person? To want more money, is that bad? Is that wrong? Some of them were religious, some of them were not, but every single person had that thing. And I said, here's the thing, I can coach you, I can show you the way, Unless you figure that part out, you will never have it. If you keep making it bad and wrong and you're afraid of it and you're afraid it defines you, it will define you. And you're going to keep struggling financially forever. And you'll either be ashamed of that or you'll be self-righteous about it. I don't need right. money. I'm right. not like that. That's a good one. This, oh, yeah. I don't need that. And, yeah. and I'm yeah. too spiritual for that. But some of them weren't even super spiritual, but it was just, I'm a good person. And the ones right. that were devout Christians and very religious would say, you know, money's the root of all evil. So it's funny. I never thought we would talk about this today, but it's an interesting topic. 
So one thing I want my audience, I know your audience knows your story, but one thing I want them to hear, because some of them, it's so funny, isn't it, that you're doing your thing and you have your community, but then there are people like me that didn't even know who you were until a year ago. I had no idea who you were. (laughs) Uh, But now we've got all of our women who are listening, who are meeting Luke's story for the first time. Will you just share with them? Nice to meet you, ladies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So... Will you share with them, you know, you are, I would say, like, I would say the king of biohacking. I'm sure you'd say that you learn from the kings of biohacking. Prince, maybe. But Prince, okay. But you've interviewed some amazing, brilliant people. And you yourself have been a student and done field research for years and years and years and years. And one thing I love is that you have things that are so accessible to people, your EMF course. Maybe you could mention that. But I know your listeners are very in tune with this, but I know I have people listening that don't even know what EMF is because I didn't until I heard about it from you. Wow. I had no clue. I'd never, I'd never heard of it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. You know, and then I went and like, okay, I'm getting this thing. I'm getting the thing on the back of my phone. I'm, and then someone said to me, Oh, you, you shouldn't do that because we have horrible connection for Wi-Fi in our house. They're like, that's even worse because the Wi-Fi is trying harder to connect and, zapping you even more. And so I don't even know what to think with that. But will you just touch on a few of the maybe three things that you believe are super impactful for people's health that aren't the typical, obviously like proper supplementation and that you think that these women listening, if they just today implemented would make a difference in their health. And then I don't want to forget to talk about blue light. Yeah, that would be one of them. Well, how do I frame this in a way that doesn't take two hours? Well, going back to what life used to be like for humans, and still is for an exceedingly few group of people, uh, hunter-gatherer types, you know, that have managed to eck out an existence in a few places on Earth, sadly. But we lived in and on the life-sustaining energy of the planet, right? So we were eating, uh, obviously, all food that humans ate, was not poisonous unless it was a poisonous plant, right? But wasn't sprayed with poison. I mean, I think it's crazy now. You go in the grocery store. Every once in a while, I go into like, well, even Whole Foods, to be honest. But if I go into like a normie grocery store, I I walk down the aisles and I'm like, people still eat this stuff? None (laughs) of this, nothing in here is actually food. Yes. It's not food. But anyway, but food is like the low-hanging fruit. And as you said, most people know about, but we were eating organ meats. You know, if you watch Predators Take Down Prey in the Wild, say like a lion and a gazelle, the very first thing they do is eat all the organs. And then often they leave and then the vultures and hyenas come and eat the muscle meat. So even if we're eating like great grass-fed meat, Mm. which is really healthy, we've evolved to be eating the organs, which is where all of the nutrition is really concentrated. But we were eating a vast swath of different types of plants, nuts, seeds, well, maybe not seed so much until after agriculture, but you know, whatever we could get a hold of that had calories in it, right? But we're eating seasonally, locally, we're living off the land, we're drinking what we're drinking today, spring water. Uh, humans don't drink water that's like not potable water, right? They're drinking fresh water, not, uh, meaning not water that's stagnant. But mainly, or equally, if not mainly, we've been out in the sun, we've been outdoors, and we've been exposed to natural light the full spectrum of light. We don't realize it, but the sun 
has all of the colors of the rainbow. When you see the prism of a rainbow, you're just seeing all the spectrum of light as it passes through uh, water vapor, right? So we moved indoors and we cut ourselves off from the elements. So we were no longer getting really cold or really hot, as especially with the advent of electricity and climate control. We started growing our own food that is generally food that's able to be stored for a long time, which is grains. Grains are seeds of grasses that don't want to be eaten. So they have anti-nutrients around them to keep animals from eating them. You know, wheat and corn and soy and such. So we started storing food that's really not edible. It's not food that animals would eat. It's not food that we naturally eat, all the grains. We started drinking municipal water. Now I'm, I'm speeding up through great epochs of time now, right? But kind of we, our fall from grace was like the agriculture revolution and then the industrial revolution. Later on, we electrified our homes, which is great. I love having lights. I love computers, Wi-Fi. It's all wonderful. But the thing is, we've become so disconnected from the natural world and the life-sustaining and light-supporting elements of our natural world that actually give us our physical health, vitality, and longevity. So contrast hunter-gatherer people with being outdoors Mm 24-7, being electrically grounded to the earth at all times, right? All creatures on the earth are always what we call now earthing or being grounded, except birds in flight, obviously. We're always connected to the earth. We might have been sleeping on an animal skin, which is conductive. It's touching the earth. Oh, I never thought about that. Yeah. So... Then we went indoors and we elevated our sleep to being on beds, not touching the earth. We started wearing rubber-soled shoes. We drive rubber-soled cars. We're disconnected from the DC current, the grounded current, the electron-donating current of the earth. And we've electrified our structures so that like right now as we sit here, because this is it's sheetrock or drywall and it's made of minerals. And so within this wall, there's unshielded conduit like electric wires running through this wall. And so what that does is it electrifies this whole wall because it's conductive. So if we had a meter in here, about three to six feet out from this wall, you'd be exposed to a very unnatural non-native EMF called an electric field. It's an alternating current. Hits about, I think, 120 cycles per second. So essentially it's an electric current that's going on and off, on and off. It's called an alternating current versus DC current, a direct current, which is what you get when you're grounded. This is getting really geeky. I'm painting a picture here of like how far we've strayed. Okay, so not only are we eating foods that we would never eat in nature, but then uh, because of mass production and you know the factory farm plants and animals, we're eating foods that are covered in and grown in pesticides and artificial nutrients, you know, fertilizers yeah, and yeah. such. And we're we're not eating the organ meats, and you probably wouldn't want to eat organ meats from a factory raised animal anyway. <laughs> Be concentrating all the yeah. stuff that you don't want, right? And we've created these, you know, electric and magnetic and radio frequency fields with radar and television stations and radio, and then later on into cell towers and cell phones and Wi-Fi and smart technology in our homes. All of this is not native to human life. Add to that the advent of the incandescent light bulb and the ability that we have to light our indoor uh, environments after dark which creates back to your blue light point, which is something I'm a huge advocate for, is blue light mitigation. We've now eliminated the life-supportive full spectrum of the sun, and we've narrowed down the spectrum of light that we're 
typically exposed to, to a very narrow spectrum of blue light. It's called non-native blue light because that light doesn't exist anywhere in our natural world, just like these EMFs or electromagnetic fields or frequencies. Like there's electromagnetism in our universe. It's natural. It's fine. Yeah. There's radiation coming from the sun. It's, it's fine. There's a magnetic field on the earth, but it's native to this planet and to our solar system and to the universe. But we've created kind of an artificial world indoors and specifically to light, even the light coming through from outside. Like right now, there's a lot of red light in the sun. If you had a, I think it's called a spectrometer, I can never pronounce it, but there's something that will read the spectrum of light in your environment. And the sun right now, because it's almost dusk, will have much more red in it, very little UV. But because we're seeing the light through these windows, half the UV spectrum is being eliminated and we're actually getting fake light through glass. Yeah. So anytime you're in you your car that. or you're in time you're home, you're getting uh, a wavelength of light that doesn't exist in the natural world. Why does that matter? Because our entire biological system that we call a body is dependent on cues from the light in our environment to regulate our neurotransmitters, our hormones, our glands, everything that makes up our circadian biology is being informed by the spectrum of light which is hitting our skin and specifically and more importantly our eyes. So, can we go back in time and live as a hunter-gatherer? Actually not. Like, I can't go live in the woods here in Texas because someone owns that land. It's either private property or government property, federal or state property. So, even if I wanted to, there's very few places I can go and just live in a tent and live by firelight at night, which is what we've evolved, that orange-red glow of a fire. Or later on, torches we would use to light our interiors, like, you know, lit torches. So, you can't go back, right? What are you going to do? And like I said, I love technology. I love the fact that we have a light on in here. And if it were to get dark right now, we could still see one another, right? So I'm not against technology, but I think it would behoove us to recreate a natural environment as much as possible inside our homes. And so that's EMF. It's mitigating EMF. It's eliminating it from your home and environment whenever possible. It's a little inconvenient to hardwire all your computers. I just did it. I live to tell the tale. It's great. You can shield your rooms with EMF paint so that cell towers don't blast radiation into your house. You can wear my brand new eyewear, shameless plug here, my new eyewear brand called- Plug away, because I'm actually getting them. I'm excited great. about it. Called Gilded, and these are blue blocking glasses. So there's like a, a more of a red amber color you wear at night, and you can still function and live your life. Everything's got a little bit of a red hue to it, but again- it's the light spectrum that would be naturally present on Earth if we didn't have electricity in our house. And then there's yellow lenses that we use during the day when we're behind windows like this or working on devices that produce this very narrow spectrum of cool mm -hmm. blue light that our biology is not adapted to. And so, you know, for example, you worked as a nurse, right? And I've noticed when I go to hospitals, many people are overweight that work there. Oh, Why? Yeah. Because their circadian rhythm is shot. 100%. They're working the worst hours, totally an antithetical. And is that the word, antithetical? And there's, I don't know. And there's <laughs> the studies antithesis. on night, ner night nurses who work night shift. Yeah. Their BMI is. Yeah, and cancer and everything mm -hmm. else. And it's it's not only the sleep pattern disruption, the, we're not nocturnal. Okay. Yeah. It's the Some light. animals aren't, but it's the exposure to the blue light and all of the EMF. And so mm. to me, I'll boil it all down to like, well, what do you do then? Right. Because we can't go back and live in the woods or the jungle very easily. And we're not willing to give up the conveniences of air conditioning and Wi Fi and whatnot and then having a car. Right. I think if someone really works 
as best they can to eat organic food. I don't even care if you're paleo, vegan, carnivore, like eat what your body wants to eat. I don't, I don't do any of that shit anymore. I've tried all the fad diets. Like I've seen it come around for the past 25 years. I was a vegetarian for 10 years and I realized all I'm eating is inflammatory grains and stuff. So I stopped that. Then I ate all meat and then I had high cholesterol. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of oscillate, but I try not to eat food that's sprayed with poisons meant to kill things. Yeah. Okay. So that's number one. The next is drinking water that is as pure as possible, which for many people, the most convenient is proper uh, purification, like a reverse osmosis system can add minerals back to the water to make it more like real water. But the ultimate is what we're drinking here, which is actual pure spring water. So there's your food, there's your water. Of course, we'll just throw movement in there. Everyone knows we're not also evolved to be sedentary and sitting in a computer or in a car or bus or whatever all day. Moving your body, blood flow, lymph, got to move. And then I think most importantly is the EMF and the blue light. And the reason why these are lesser known, and people like me are helping to become an advocate for awareness around these things, but EMF is invisible. So you sit in here, you're like, what? I feel fine. You could have your cell phone next to your head, a Wi-Fi router right here. You could have a smart meter in your house. You're like, I'm fine. Where are you going to be in 10 years though? And can you trace it back to the EMF? Probably not. You just think, oh, it's in my genes, right? You know, oh, my mom had breast cancer, so I have it. No, the blue light or, probably gave you cancer. Right. Honestly. Or isn't this right? You also could say, because this is what I say about implants. I had my breast implants removed. I was very sick for a year and a half. Just had major surgery in July, almost six hours in the operating room. And I'm already better. I mean, within a day, I felt different. And, you know, there's still doctors saying it's not true. And that's a whole, but it's very similar to this in that I tell women who say, I'm fine. Okay. I know you don't think you're sick from the implants, but you know, those headaches you get, so with EMF, right, it could be brain fog, could be depression, it could be headaches that they think they're fine, but it actually is related to that. It may not be 10 years down the line, right? And, and sleep disturbance. That's one of the main things. And I speak from experience. Okay, I was really into EMF awareness for probably 15, maybe 20 years, actually. I mean, I've become increasingly aware and more educated about it. Um, so I would never live anywhere near a cell tower. But three years ago, Actually, no more now. God, it's probably five years ago now. I moved into an apartment. I looked around the neighborhood. There were no cell towers. That great. I'll take it. I got so sick living there. And the, the the symptoms you just described, excruciating headaches, migraines. I've never had headaches in my life. I mean, I don't even own aspirin, you know? I got colds, flus. I had to start wearing glasses. My eyes went bad. Your eyes are part of your brain. You know, they're actually part of your brain, not, not, their, not their own organ per se. Uh, an extension of your brain. Anyway, I had all these health problems and just mainly the brain fog. I mean, I just like could barely work. Sometimes I had a hard time driving because I would get confused and lost. I mean, it was bad. And then one day I discovered hidden on the building across from my bedroom were two massive cell towers. And I was like, holy shit, I have radiation poisoning. And so I moved to a place in the Hollywood Hills, like in a canyon where it was very low EMF. I did a lot of mitigation in my house to minimize even the exposure up there. And magically, all those symptoms went away. Um, but still, I'm, I'm still working to regain uh, some of that. There was some damage done. I personally believe, and I've interviewed physicists and biologists and doctors and PhDs and all kinds of people, that if I had to continue to live there, I would have likely ended up with brain cancer because wow. the radiation level was so high. So I speak from experience. It's very real, as is the dangers of blue light and all of this. However, 
it's another side to this. So those are kind of all the things you look out for, right? And then there are steps you can take to minimize that. But on the other side of it, there's also the neuroses side of it, which is walking around being totally paranoid about everything in, the, in, our, in our modern industrialized environment trying to kill you. Yes. And the sympathetic nervous system response and the cortisol and everything that you're going to experience worrying about all yes. this shit. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Is also bad for you, right? So my motto and message is always awareness over fear. Like, yes. Let's take some time to educate ourselves in a sane, scientific, logical way. Let's put the Wi-Fi, if we have to have Wi-Fi in the house because our family members are going to bitch at us for hardwiring everything and they yeah. want that connectivity, fine. Let's put on a timer at night. Let's keep it away from the bedroom, meaning turn it off at night. Yeah. Like there's very simple things. You yeah. can get a Defender Shield case for your iPhone. So when you talk on speakerphone, the radiation's not hitting you in the brain. I mean, there are tools now available. My blue blocking eyewear line, Gilded. You know, there are tools that are relatively affordable relatively easy to integrate into your day-to-day -day life to habituate yourself to. And then you don't worry about it. Like yeah. you don't worry about what you can't control. Yeah. But I will tell people listening, if you're living anywhere near a cell tower, I would honestly highly recommend. I care about, you said I care about people that follow my work. I really do. I love people. Um, and I love alleviating suffering for people because I've suffered a lot in my life as have many people and I've overcome so much. So if I can give someone a shortcut and someone out there is listening and going, wow, that's weird. I have headaches every day and I start off to wear glasses. And if you look outside and you can see a cell tower anywhere in, in your line of sight, you got to move, man. It's no joke. If you're going to trust the telecommunications companies and the FCC to protect you and tell you what's safe and not safe, I'm sorry to be the one to break the news to you, but they're about profit oh, um, for sure. and industry. They're not about public safety. And this science behind all of this is still readily available because it's not that conspiratorial, right? It's not like going into COVID wormholes yeah, yeah, and things. Yeah. That's a whole other mess. But this is real. There are 30,000 studies indicating and proving the harmful effects of EMF. And now, not that many, but many around blue light exposure. And so, so it's one of those things, and I'll close yeah, with this, is yeah. that in a number of years who knows how long, maybe 10, maybe 50, maybe 200, we're going to look back on this time in history and go, oh my God, remember when we put up cell towers in front of every school and church and in neighborhoods? What a catastrophe. Remember when we all of our lights indoors were a narrow spectrum of blue and we all just rolled with it? Remember when we used to sleep with our cell phone on next to our head all night because we liked the alarm clock? Remember when, remember when. Remember when we used to eat foods that were sprayed with poisons meant to kill living biological organisms? We're going to look back on this time, hopefully, as we do asbestos, DDT, doctors smoking cigarettes and recommending them. I mean, all the That's things crazy. you think about even yeah. in the last you know, you. 70 years that we're like, oh my God, how could we have been so dumb? Uh, that's what we'll be saying uh, shortly about the things that I just described. And it's only up to each one of us to kind of get educated in a moderate, sane way and take steps to uh, build awareness if you feel called in your family and loved ones. You don't want to proselytize and preach because that's a fast way to turn people off to your belief system. But I think awareness and taking some steps of mitigation uh, is super important. So I'm constantly posting about this stuff because I. I care about people. And like I said, there's 
there are ways that you can alleviate a lot of suffering just by educating oneself. And don't you, it's a leading question. I sort of say, yeah. don't you think, I feel, um, and I'm so glad you talked about not being paranoid and having to do it all because that's a way to avoid it all too. It's all going to kill me, so I might as well. But I feel like having the, the glasses, getting some EMF protection and eating a little better. If someone looks at, let's say, the, the blue blocking glasses and they're like, isn't that a little extreme? Do I really need to do that? What I say is, and the reason I'm going to get them is, you know what? I don't eat perfectly. I don't do everything else perfectly. That's another way I can help my health. That's so easy, right? Totally. It's so simple. Well, yeah. And to, and to your point about being extreme, because I've been accused of that before, and I probably am. I'm and to be transparent, <laughs> I actually thought that at first. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Right? I actually, I actually, can I just tell you a funny story? <laughs> sure, please. I, I, I feel like I kind of know away. you now. Okay. So <laughs> we went to lunch before here, and I said, TK, I said, should I tell Luke that I like got all juiced up and ready for his interview? I've got a cell phone here. I've got a cell phone here. I'm drinking a Coca-Cola. I'm <laughs> eating my brisket and I'm having my mac and cheese at lunch. And I actually posted a picture of me drinking a Coke. I think seeing someone who does everything you do can appear extreme, but I will tell you what it's triggering for most people, including me. It's shit. I should probably be doing that. And so it's easy then to just do this. I think, I think that's the reason, right? But I love that you shared a little bit earlier about the nicotine. Yeah, it's right there. But you're so real. (laughs) Thank you for being so real about that. For the pint of ice cream. Oh, I I love love that you said that. Love ice cream. We, people look up to you, you know, like I see everything you do and I'm like, oh my God, he would never eat ice cream. Oh my God, he'd never drink a Coke. I just said that at lunch. I'm like, what if Luke saw me do it? And I, I love that you're so real about that. I mean, you can't be too uptight, but to the extreme thing, here's the way I look at it. This is like the story of my life is that throughout my whole life, I've felt like a weirdo, okay? But also, I felt like, and still do, I'm actually the normal one. Yeah. Like what people would observe as being extreme in my lifestyle, I think it's extreme to get Alzheimer's, to get chemotherapy, to have organs extracted from your body, yeah. uh, to be on seven pharmaceutical yeah. medicines and, and, think that's normal. and suffer the side effects of not only each one, but not their untold interaction with one yeah. another, yeah. Um, to have a hip replacement, uh, you know, to have spine surgery, you know, like to me, the end game of living the traditional classical, to say, you know, for lack of a better geographic uh, boundary, the classic American diet, American lifestyle. I look at the people and I'm like, that's extreme. Watching someone with a Bluetooth thing on their head or the earbuds, like shooting Bluetooth RF radiation through their brain. That's so extreme to me Yeah, that you would do that to your body. It's not a judgmental thing. I don't care. I get it. I I don't give a shit what people do. Like it's none of my business at all. I don't care. I don't tell people anything unless they ask me. I've had to learn that, but I think I'm actually totally normal because I, again, I look evolutionarily speaking, and I know I'm not a hunter-gatherer person, but I look at where we were just a very short time ago. I mean, I'm talking 10, 15,000 years ago, and even blue light, EMF, electricity, all of that stuff, the industrial age. I mean, we're talking two, 300 years ago. Humans have been here for eons living out there outside doing great. The diseases that we see today literally did not exist in humans a couple hundred, a couple thousand years ago. To me, that's extreme. 
I hear you. That's extreme. So when I was in that world you know. of MLM, I was in the world of nutrition. So I lectured all over North America on nutrition. And I used to say to people, and I was someone, by the way, who lived on junk food, lived on fast food. I was a stressed out nurse. I would go through a 12-hour shift drinking hardly any water, drinking a ton of Pepsi, and hitting Taco Bell on the way home from a 12-hour shift, right? That was my life. And I was thin, so I thought I was healthy. And what I learned when I was awakened to what real food is, I mean, I had no idea, Luke. I was so clueless about everything. This was 14 years ago. When I woke up, I became the extremist who preached to everybody, who judged everybody, who threw everything I learned onto people and said, you should, you should, you should. But one thing when I toned it down and came back to reality, I realized is similar to what you just said. I said, you know, just because it is common for your child to have an inhaler in third grade, that doesn't mean it's normal. But we've normalized all of that, you know, and being a nurse, I'll tell you that the pediatric book for nursing in just the course of 12 years tripled in size because they had to start fitting all the adult diseases into the pediatric nursing book. So brutal. Yeah. So you're now teaching nursing students, you know, about, you know, in in the pediatrics book about adult diseases that never affected kids, you know, kids getting diagnosed with breast cancer in high school. And and in fact, it's very common nowadays, by the way. Um, I know an oncologist in Louisville who said, do you know how many times I've had the conversation with young women about breast cancer options when they're supposed to be shopping for prom dresses? Right. This has become very yeah. common or kids with diabetes, eight year olds with diabetes, et cetera. Yeah. But it reminds me of that. And I used to say, they would say, well, it's too expensive. I tried coaching people with nutrition and then I gave up because it was so frustrating. I can't do that. It's too expensive to eat organic. I'm like, you know what else is expensive? Chemotherapy is expensive. Prescription drugs are expensive. Well, that's yeah. the thing with these lifestyle choices. And A, I, aside from just caring about humanity, I really don't care what other people do. It's not. It's none of my business. Yeah. So, but there was a phase, especially when I was a vegetarian. If we sit down for a meal, I'm like, you know, steak is really, you know, like I was but that But that guy. still came from a good place though, right? At least for me, I, I mean, really was trying to help people. I think some, I just didn't understand the boundary. <laughs> I think some of it for me has been in uh, my desire to control things. And sometimes those things include people. And I've experienced this in my relationship. You know, Allison's generally very healthy and happy and just lives her life and does whatever she wants, eats whatever, moves however. And I've learned, and she's someone that is very independent, fiercely independent, does not need to be, want to be told what to do about anything. So even, you know, all these years later, I still find it when I really love someone, there is that element of caring about them and not wanting them to harm themselves. But it's also just if I'm being really honest, it's like the fear of something bad happening that manifests as control. And sometimes that's controlling myself and every little thing I do and kind of the neurotic side Mm -hmm. of being a health guy or biohacker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then that can bleed out onto other people. But all of that aside, I truly believe that the reason that some of the things that I do and have built into my lifestyle and some of the things I teach about seem extreme. And that's because the human race has drifted so far yeah. from earth from mother earth from our natural life ways that just to get back to like close to baseline requires like a lot of propping up because we're so the pendulum swung so far toward death and destruction <laughs> that it's like yeah so i wear these glasses i have the emf thing right here you know it's like 
There's all these kind of props and all this stuff. But honestly, I would rather not do any of this shit. I know. And just live in the wild and eat organ meats and be in the sun all day and go in natural healing hot spring. You know, like, mm-hmm. not like I want to go back. I love the conveniences. I and get I, it. I'm I acclimated it. to them. But yeah. the only reason I'm doing all this stuff is because we're so far out of whack. And just think about like what's extreme. You mentioned, you know, how expensive chemotherapy and surgery you're either going to pay the farmer or you're going to pay the doctor. Oh, yeah, right? 100%. And what I find really weird is driving around cities and seeing the number of hospitals there are and how massive the hospitals are. Yeah. And then you look at the animal kingdom, the ones still living in the wild that we haven't adulterated, which we are harming them with cell towers and, and light at night. Animals are also yoked to the sun and the moon and all that and the light spectrum, but Animals don't need hospitals. Animals don't get Alzheimer's and diabetes and cancer and heart disease, right? Unless we put them in a zoo, then they get sick. Because why? Because they're not getting natural light, they're getting EMF, and they're getting a kibble diet of food that is not their native natural diet Yeah. with the diversity and the, the macro and micronutrition that would be inherent in their wild animal life diet. So what's extreme is having to build special buildings, skyscrapers to put sick people into because why? Because of our lifestyle, because people aren't extreme enough, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But again, man, live and let live. Y'all do you, you know, it's, I mean, it's whatever. So my parents are 82 and 83 and people cannot believe it when I tell them that neither one of them is on a prescription medication. I mean, when I used to admit people to the hospital, I've worked in the NICU, I've worked in cardiac units, I've worked in surgery. And when you look at a patient's chart, and if they're, let's say, over 60, if they're over 70, oh my God, if they don't have at least five to 10 medications, it's abnormal. I mean, we used to joke that, hey, I won the lottery if you get a patient that doesn't have a lot of medication because it's easier to admit them in the hospital. It takes less time. I mean, there are people with 20, 30 meds. And it's just, it's the whole common and normal thing. I really appreciate I know it's your life's work and I know you love it and I know you're passionate about it. But as someone who's new to this, you know, I was, I, I wasn't new to nutrition, but a lot of what you share, I had never heard of. I'm so glad you're continuing to do what you do because as I heard that, I heard, I heard some episode on your show. I swear it was like three hours on incandescent lights and then I was laughing at myself. I'm like, look at me. I've, I've learned so much from you. Yeah, and yeah. I invite everyone who's listening to learn from Luke because you know, you're a trusted source and you've done so much research. And so is it your website where we should send them? Yeah, I think the mothership uh, where you can kind of find links to everything is lukestory.com, S-T-O-R-E-Y.com. There's a link to my EMF course there, which is like six and a half hours of not only how to identify the EMF in your life, but how to fix it. Which that that course could be easily well over $1,000. Yeah, I, I made it $150 because yeah. it's not like the cornerstone of my business model. I didn't want to yeah. give it away for free because it costs money to produce it. Yeah. But I made it as free as possible. But the funny thing is when you price something that low, it's $150 is a lot of money to some people in disposable income. But generally for online courses, yeah, they're $1,000, $2,000 for the same you know amount yeah. of content. But what's funny is I've noticed over the couple of years since I've had that out that 
I think people discount the value of it because it's so cheap, you know, yeah. I'm like, I should have charged nine ninety nine or whatever. So people, yeah. not because I need the money, but just so people would actually take the course. I totally hear it's you. like when you get something for free, yep. you're like, eh, I'll watch it later, you know? Yeah. Um, and I've gifted it to more people that have probably bought it, but yeah, so that's there. And my, my gilded eyewear brand is there and I have an online store where I've spent the past, oh God, almost seven years uh, archiving links to every health and wellness product. And I love that you do that. Yeah. Because there's a it's lot of crappy, so honestly, there's a lot of crappy stuff out there that is a waste of money. And I've wasted my money on it. That's how I know. And so all of the supplements and gadgets and technologies, anything I find that I think is awesome and will actually help people, I link to it in my store. So I don't sell anything in there. I just have affiliate links and discount codes. And it's kind of just like, after enough people ask me, hey, what was that one thing yeah. you recommended? I'm like, oh, oh God, yeah. I have to find the link to the person's yes. website. And I'm just like, all right, all the shit that I like is all at lukestory.com slash store. Have fun, go nuts. And it's all categorized. So if you're like, I want to do EMF stuff, it's in a category. Yes. You know? And what I appreciate, I'll tell you as as someone who follows you, is that you don't just have it in the highlights on your Instagram. You have it on the website. It's so much easier. Most people don't do that. And so you have to find someone on Instagram and then you have to follow their story and then you have to go through their highlights and swipe through. Then you have to take a screenshot. Then you have to, thank yeah. you for putting the yeah. time in. Well, I forget that. to tell people that it's there. So I'm glad, I, I'm glad I thought of it because yes, it's so I get so easier. many questions on Instagram and stuff. Just like, give them the link. What are the best red light bulbs or spring water or whatever it is? And, and I'll send people individually links. And then I always think like, oh, you can just go to my site. Everything I ever yes. talk about is there. And, just and then send them to your site. The podcast, you know, sponsors that support me also are in there and things like that. Um, and my podcast is a good way, as you've indicated, yes. to kind of hear some of the knowledge, not just that I've acquired, but really the experts that I'm learning from. So all of my heroes are on the podcast, whether it's someone like Joe Dispenza, who's exploring consciousness, or Dr. Jack Cruz, or Dave Asprey, some of the people that are really keen on the cutting-edge health stuff. So I try to cover it all and... The podcast is really just like a documentation of my continuing education. Mm-hmm. So I probably benefit more than anyone because I'm sitting right here with the people. It's amazing. Asking them whatever I want for two hours. You know, my shows are typically quite long because I'm just an eternally curious person. So that's, yeah, that's all the places you can find me. Thank you so much. I so appreciate you. you doing this with me. Yeah, thanks I know for you probably get me. a lot of requests and... I'm really happy you said yes. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I love doing this. I love people and I love talking, obviously, as it will be obvious to anyone <laughs> listening to this after however long we've been going, hour and 35 minutes. But I don't do a lot of them just because, you know, it takes an hour and a half out of your day. Yeah. And it's like, it's more fun than a lot of the other work I do, to be honest. I'm glad we got to do this today. But this was a really good one. And I'm, I'm glad we got to chat. And you're a great interviewer and all the stuff you wanted to talk about is what I'm most excited about right now. So I appreciate it. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you so much. So everyone listening and, and hey to everybody on Instagram, everyone listening, find Luke and also share with me your thoughts on this episode. I'm curious and send me a picture and him of you and your new glasses. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 